Well, good morning or just about good afternoon to everybody here. Good afternoon to you watching at home as well. So um, as uh, Nicola said, we're continuing to look at the king and his kingdom through the gospel of Luke. And today the focus is on the call of the kingdom. The call of the kingdom. And you'll have noticed just then, it's quite a long passage of scripture that we're looking at today. It contains four different stories, four different events And of course, often we would take each of those events in turn, in isolation, and preach a message on each one of them. Um, But actually, sometimes it's good to look from a a slightly wider angle, uh, because the gospel writers arrange their gospels in particular ways for particular reasons. And so sometimes stories are grouped together deliberately to make a wider point, to make an even bigger point. And so that's what we're doing today. We're taking a look from a, a wider angle, a kind of a bigger picture perspective. So the first four chapters of Luke have been all about Jesus, um, and particularly establishing who Jesus is, that this isn't just another prophet. It's not just another teacher or just another king. This is the king of kings. This is the son of God. It's God himself entering into human history. This is the king who is bringing his kingdom, his rule, his reign. The kingdom of God is coming near. The kingdom of God is breaking in through Jesus. And last week, Rich talks a bit about what that looks like as he talked about the the kingdom manifesto from Luke 4. Um, The freedom that comes with the kingdom, the healing, the forgiveness, peace, joy, comfort, those kinds of things that come with the kingdom of God. So it's been all about Jesus establishing who he is. But now, in chapter 5, Jesus starts to gather his followers. And what is immediately obvious is that this is not a very impressive bunch of people. And Jesus says it right at the end of the passage that we just heard read out when uh, he's responding to the Pharisees because the Pharisees are standing at a distance. They they, They won't be in the presence of people like this. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance and now of course that includes everybody because everybody is a sinner but not everybody realizes it and so he's really saying to the Pharisees when he talks about it's not the righteous he's really pointing to them and saying he's really talking about self-righteous the self-righteous he's it's like he's saying to the Pharisees well you think you're righteous okay fine you you think you're better than others you think you don't need a savior okay That's your choice, that's up to you, but I am going to help those who realise that they do, that they do need help, that they do need a saviour. And self-righteousness is ultimately the, the greatest barrier to entering into the kingdom of God, in the same way that a refusal to acknowledge when you're ill is a barrier to receiving or entering into the healthcare that you need. When we talk about sin, sin's not a very popular word in our day, in our culture, but we're not really talking so much about particular actions, that this particular sin or that particular sin, because actually all of sin, when the Bible talks about sin, all of it really boils down to that heart attitude of self-righteousness, which is self-sufficiency, which is saying, I don't need, I don't need God, and sometimes that manifests itself as superiority, sometimes it can be inferiority, pride. It's the attitude that says, I know better than God. I don't need to take instructions from, from God. I don't need him. In fact, if God exists, I would be an asset to him. He would be lucky to have me on his team. Now, those are not the people Jesus calls. The, the, the wealthy, the elite, the powerful of society. And not because he doesn't love them. 
Not because the, the invitation into the kingdom doesn't extend to them. It does. But it's really ultimately that attitude of self-righteousness that gets in the way. So who does Jesus call in this passage? Well, ordinary people. Very ordinary people. And even people who you might consider to be the dregs of society. People who know they have nothing to offer to God. People who many might consider to be too far away from God, beyond the pale, beyond hope, beyond reach. So first he calls a bunch of fishermen. And being a fisherman, you're already not particularly high on the, on the social ladder. But also, I don't know if you've noticed, but they, they just don't seem to be very good at their job. I mean, this might be a grossly unfair assumption based on very limited evidence. But whenever we see these guys fishing in the Gospels, they don't seem to catch many fish. Until Jesus comes along and helps them. Or they're sailing into a storm and they're really afraid of the waves on the lake. It's like, surely you should know about these things. So I'm I'm guessing that they're not experiencing a high degree of job satisfaction, these fishermen. Then there's a leper in the second story. A leper. Now a leper is someone who is seen as unclean and disgusting. Complete outcast. So we have a leper. Then we have somebody who is not only physically disabled, can't do anything for himself, and again, there's a huge stigma in that society for somebody in that position. But he's also spiritually desperate. Jesus sees his need straight away, and he says, it's to have your sins forgiven. That's your real need. Spiritually desperate. And then he calls a tax collector in the fourth story. A tax collector, which a tax collector in that, in that society is not only morally questionable, but he's morally despicable. I mean, the word scum has been bandied around recently in political circles. But this is the scum of the earth. In that society, a tax collector, absolute scum. So the point is, actually the call of the kingdom is for all. Nobody's beyond its reach. The call of the kingdom is for all who will gladly receive it and respond to it. So if you're feeling vocationally disappointed, like those fishermen might have been, well, Jesus calls you. He calls you. If you're feeling lonely or you're feeling socially um, outcast or even maybe socially unacceptable, Jesus calls you. If you're feeling spiritually desperate or you know you're spiritually desperate or you feel morally bankrupt, Jesus calls you. It's really good news. It is good news. He calls you through no merit of your own into his kingdom of freedom and healing and forgiveness and joy and peace and comfort. He offers you salvation. He offers you rescue, salvation from yourselves and from the world. And of course, many of you who are here today, many of you watching at home today, have responded to that call. You have received his salvation. Praise God. But if you haven't, If you haven't, maybe he is calling you today. The offer is there. It's self-righteousness that will stop you entering into the kingdom of God. So humble yourself before him. Acknowledge your sin. Admit that you need his help, that you need his rescue, and then submit your life to him. That's repentance. That is repentance. As Jesus said, he has come to call sinners to repentance. You don't receive salvation through your accomplishments or through negotiation with God. You receive it through surrendering to him. So Jesus calls ordinary people into his kingdom. Ordinary people with all their mess, 
with all their insecurities, with all their shame, with all of their flaws. You can come to him just as you are, but he never intends to leave you just as you are. Because he changes those who respond to his call. And again, this is where looking at those four stories all together is really helpful because each story shows us a different aspect of that change. And looking at them together just shows us how all comprehensive Jesus' salvation really is. As we see, he transforms our relationship with ourselves. He transforms our relationship with others. He transforms our relationship with, the, uh, with God. And finally, he transforms our relationship with the world. And so that's where we're going. So how does Jesus transform our relationship with others? Well, let's look briefly at that first story with the fishermen. What happened in that story? At Jesus' word, in obedience to Jesus' word, they drop their nets again, even though they don't really want to, but they get this incredible catch of fish. And this is, this is the greatest catch that Simon Peter has ever seen. And in a moment, in, in that moment, he gets some sort of revelation. He He gets a glimpse, he realises something of who Jesus is, and he says, get away from me. I I am not fit to be in your presence. He sees a purity, a, a holiness, a beauty about Jesus. I am not fit to be in your presence. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to get away from you. Because actually I have a new purpose for you. And it's to be a fisher of men, a fisher of people. And there's a transformation of identity that goes on in those moments um, for Simon Peter. And actually Luke points to it symbolically, the writer of this gospel, Luke. Because at the beginning of the story, he refers to him just as Simon. But then halfway through the story, suddenly he talks about him as Simon Peter. And now we know that later on, Jesus would give him the name Peter. And that's another marker of a change of identity that has happened. But that hasn't happened yet. And so it's like Luke is pointing to a transformation of identity that's already happening. Simon is becoming Simon Peter already. And so what is happening to him? What is happening to Simon Peter? Well, first, he comes to a realisation, an awareness of his sinfulness. Get away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And maybe he already was aware of that to an extent. But it seems that in the presence of Jesus... It became an acute awareness in that he couldn't cope with being in the same space as Jesus. And this is what happens when you come near to God and you come near to his holiness and his light and his perfection and his light shines on you. You can't remain self-righteous. You just can't. You see how flawed you are. A bit like when you look in a mirror that has a bright light attached to it. Suddenly you see things on your face that you didn't know were there. You see how flawed you are. You see how sinful you are in his presence. And that is always the first step in repentance. It's kind of like God both attracts you and repels you at the same time. He attracts you with his beauty, with his holiness, with his light. But at the same time, it feels uncomfortable. In the story, there's this power that Jesus shows, this amazing catch of fish. Now that's attractive for fishermen. You want to be around a guy like this who can do that. That is mega money coming your way. And yet at the same time, it's get away from me, Lord. You can't get close to God without becoming aware of your sinfulness and your wretchedness. But, but, in the very same moment, the the same person who's making Simon Peter feel like that also affirms him 
more deeply than he's ever been affirmed. Jesus says, don't be afraid. Jesus knows what's going on in his heart. He says, don't be afraid. I've got things for you to do. Follow me. I don't want you away from me. I want to be close to you. I've chosen you. He affirms him so, so deeply. When we get close to Jesus, when the kingdom breaks in in your life, you realize, all in that moment, you realize that you are more wicked and sinful than you ever believed. And yet, at the same time, you are more valued, you are more loved, you are more affirmed than you could ever dare hope. And I know I've shared my own story of salvation many times including just a few weeks ago, but I'm going to keep sharing it because it's mine and nobody can stop me. But that was exactly my experience, exactly my experience, that when I was born again, when I was saved, when I was 17, it was in a moment feeling the depth of my sin, even though in the eyes of the world I would have been seen as a decent person. I wasn't doing bad things in my life, but I became aware of the depth of my sin, the darkness, the dirt in my heart, and at the same time, feeling absolutely flooded and drenched with the most extraordinary, pure, burning, passionate, fiery love of God. That changes you. That changes you. And so these fishermen are changed. They are now on mission. They've got a different priority in their life. They've got a different purpose in their life. And it's summed up in the line that says, they pulled their boats up on the shore, they left everything, and they followed him. Just think about what they left behind, though. Because it wasn't just their boats and their nets and their livelihood. There was something else they left behind in that moment. They left behind the biggest, most lucrative catch of fish that they had ever seen in their lives. This was more money to them than they had ever known. They left everything. Everything. Such was the transformation that Jesus brought. And I wonder how much are we prepared to leave behind. I mean, Jesus doesn't ask everybody to leave their job or to leave your house or to, he doesn't, that's not how he works. He wants you in those places to be a witness to him. But how much are we prepared to leave behind to follow Jesus? Are there things we cling on to that stop us following him? So Jesus transforms our relationship with ourselves, how we see ourselves, our identity. And then secondly, he transforms our relationship with others. So for this leper in the second story, this leper that Jesus healed, as bad as the physical disease he had would have been, it was kind of incidental to the real suffering that this man was going through because he would have been suffering on all sorts of different levels. He would have been suffering socially and emotionally through being completely outcast. He wasn't allowed to come into the town. I mean, this man's taken a great risk by coming into town to approach Jesus. He's supposed to live outside the town where there is nobody else there, where there's no human contact. Relational network, gone, destroyed, no human touch. He would have been economically destroyed because there's no way now of him earning a living. And also in the Jewish religion, he is ceremonially unclean. He is unclean, which means he can't enter the temple. He can't be part of a worshipping community. He is spiritually outcast, utterly isolated. A social, emotional, economic, spiritual pariah. Completely outcast. Now the fact that Jesus reaches out and touches him. The man comes to him and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reaches out and touches him and says, I am willing. Be clean. But the fact that Jesus touches him tells us there's so much more than just a physical healing going on here. 
Because we know Jesus doesn't need to touch anybody to heal them. We see it in the very next story, which we'll come to in, in just a minute. Now, Jesus knows what this man needs, and he knew what a human touch would mean to this man who had been starved of that contact for so long. Jesus doesn't just want to heal this man physically. He wants to heal him emotionally and spiritually and socially. And his concern, Jesus' primary concern for this man is to bring him back into community. He tells him to go and show the priest to prove that he's now clean and that he can be allowed again into the temple, into that worshipping community of people. But this is what Jesus still does today. For those who respond to his call, he brings you into the community of his people, into the community of the church. And by the way, for Jesus to declare this man to be clean is staggering. For, for those who saw this, this would have been a complete paradigm shift for them. Because under the Jewish law, touching a leper, apart from the obvious risk of catching the disease, but touching the leper should have made Jesus ceremonially unclean. Not the other way around, but this is how religion works. This is how self-righteousness works, actually. Religion says, if I am good, if I'm clean, if I'm good and I follow the rules and I live a good life, then I get to heaven because I make myself fit for the presence of God. But when what is clean comes into contact with what is unclean, it becomes unclean and it needs to be purified. And so a Jew who was ceremonially unclean, would have had to go through a purification ritual to be able to enter the temple again, to be fit for the presence of God. That's how religion works. Jesus, though, turns that completely on its head. He says, I make you clean. You don't make me unclean. I make you clean. His cleanness, his healing power, infected the man and not the other way around. And Jesus still says to us today, I make you clean. No matter what you've done in your life, no matter what secrets you may carry in your past or even in your present, no matter what shame you might feel about your life, no matter how tainted your record is, the moment I touch you, I make you clean. You become fit for the presence of God. My cleanness becomes your cleanness. It's wonderful. And the call is still there. The call is there. The offer is there for those who will receive it. So Jesus transforms our relationship with ourselves, how we see ourselves, our identity. He transforms our relationship with others, cleansing us, bringing us into community. And then he transforms our relationship with God. So he says to this paralytic man who's been lowered down through the roof, what does he say to him? He says, your sins are forgiven. And you can kind of imagine the man and his friends thinking, not really what I came for. I, I kind of want to be healed. I, I want to walk. And um, the Pharisees are upset by this as well because they're muttering to themselves, thinking to themselves, well, only God can forgive sins. Who is this man? Only God can forgive sins. Well, 100% correct. You're spot on. And the implication of that is clear. But Jesus really is saying to this man in front of him and to the crowds of people who are watching, he's saying, actually, your body, your broken body is not the most fundamental problem that you have. It might seem like it is, but it's not. Your biggest problem is alienation from God. That there's this barrier of sin that needs to be removed. And that's the human problem. That's the problem for all of us. That because of sin, because of this barrier of sin that is there, we are born and we live separated from God. And we need to be put right with God through Jesus. 
to have that relationship that we were all made for, to have that restored, to be reconciled to God. And Jesus does it with this man in, in, in just a word or just a few words. He says, your sins are forgiven. And knowing what everyone's thinking in that moment, Jesus says, well, okay, which is easier or harder? To say your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? I wonder what you think. I guess instinctively we probably think the walking thing is harder. You know, physical healing seems to be much harder. Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's much, much harder to forgive sins. And Jesus can say that because he knew what the cost would be to be able to forgive sins. Because as he looks at this paralyzed man in front of him, who is, he's paralyzed, he's immobilized, he's alienated from God. Well, Jesus can only say to him, your sins are forgiven, because he himself would pay the price for those sins. He himself would, as it were, become immobilized, paralyzed through being nailed on a cross. And he himself would be alienated from his father in heaven in those moments. And then in the earlier story of the leper, cleansing this leper, healing the leper, transforming this outcast, this physically disfigured pariah who didn't belong there where he was in the town. He should have been out of the town. Well, Jesus can only do that because he himself would be physically disfigured. And he himself would be heading out of town with a wooden beam on his back. And he became a a, a pariah himself. He became an outcast. He became a curse as he hung there on the cross and took upon himself all the muck and the dirt of the human race. And he got what we deserve so we could receive what he deserves. Jesus knows the cost to say your sins are forgiven. Jesus knows the cost of that. Notice with the paralyzed man, there's actually no indication of repentance. There's an indication of faith, but there's no indication of repentance. We assume there must have been a longing in his heart that Jesus could see for mercy and to be put right with God. And that's the thing with salvation, responding to the call of Jesus, responding to the call of the kingdom is not about using just the right words, just the right kind of prayer, the right formula. It's about what's going on in your heart. It's about longing to be right with God again and gratefully receiving his grace. And then the final transformation that Jesus brings is in our relationship with the world. Because those who Jesus calls are ordinary people changed by Jesus to change the world. It's who we are. You see, Jesus is on mission and he proactively takes the initiative to reach out to Levi, the tax collector. He doesn't wait for Levi to come to him. Jesus goes to him. Jesus intentionally seeks out sinners and calls them into his kingdom. And what does Levi then do? Having just, just like the fisherman, having left everything, respond to the call, and he left everything to follow Jesus. What does Levi do? He goes out and invites a bunch of his friends to a banquet to come and meet Jesus for themselves. So Jesus, in Levi, Jesus makes a disciple who goes out and makes other disciples. And the call on us as his followers today is to do the same. To be proactive, to be intentional in making disciples who are making disciples. I wonder how we feel about that. I wonder how we are doing with that. If you have children, uh, you will have found yourself, I, I imagine at some point, in the horrible position of being in a public place and losing sight of, your ch- of, of one of your children. So I remember when we were at Legoland a few years ago as a family with our three kids, and we suddenly realized that Joel, who was three at the time, was nowhere to be seen. And this is Legoland. This is a big place and there's lots of people. And the most 
terrible thoughts go through your head. But then as you start looking and you start calling his name and it becomes obvious that you're looking for a lost child, the behavior of others around you changes. First of all, his sisters started to look as well and call his name. It was quite touching to see they they did care. They're looking for him. And then other people in the vicinity realize a bit of what's going on. They can see there's something going on. And they stop. And they start looking. They ask, what does he look like? And they start looking for this small boy who might be there on his own, even though they don't know him and they don't know us. It's just one of those situations, a lost child, that causes people to stop what they're doing, to stop what they're focused on in that moment, and shift their focus to something which is a lot more important in that moment. Now, thankfully, we found Joel quite quickly. Um, He had just run off down a different path, which is what three-year-olds tend to do. But in a sense, here's the point. In a sense, we're surrounded by lost children. God's lost children. And you, you recall the image of the father of the prodigal son scanning the horizon every day, just hoping to catch a glimpse of his lost child, his son who is missing. And when he sees him, he runs towards him, so delighted is he to find him, to be reunited with him. It's the father heart of God. Our mission is to seek the lost, to reconcile them with the father, and then catch them up in that same mission to go and seek others who are lost. There is nothing more important than that. There's nothing more important than that, and yet, how often do we get distracted from that mission? Not realizing we're surrounded by people who are lost. How often, how quickly do we become indifferent to the situation? Where is our focus? We're called to seek the lost and to be proactive and intentional about making disciples who make disciples. That's how we change the world. That's, that's how the kingdom advances. That's why we seek to bless people. B-L-E-S-S. Begin with prayer, listen, eat together, serve, share your story. That's why we seek to bless people. That's why we seek to live naturally supernatural lives. To bring the kingdom into the lives of those who don't yet know Jesus. Ordinary people changed by Jesus to change the world. Just notice in that last story how Jesus changes people by sitting down to eat with them. It has huge cultural significance. It says, I love you. It says, I welcome you. It says, I accept you. And people are transformed by that kind of unconditional acceptance, that unconditional welcome and the grace of God. Now, here's the thing. We are still invited to eat at the king's table. And that's what we're going to be doing a little bit later by taking communion together, by breaking bread together, reminding ourselves of what Jesus sacrificed so we could be called into his kingdom. It's powerful and it's transformative when we eat this meal together because Jesus is right here with us. We come and we eat at his table, at the king's table. So the call of the kingdom is to ordinary people, just ordinary people, to anyone who will gladly hear and respond. So the question is, have you done that? Have you responded to his call? And the call of the kingdom is the invitation to leave the old life behind, to follow Jesus, to gather in community, and to know that transformation that Jesus brings in our relationship with ourselves, with others, and with God. The question is, are you experiencing that transformation in your life right now? And the call of the kingdom is a commissioning to become fishers of men to change the world through making disciples who make disciples, seeking God's lost children. The question is, are you doing that? How intentional 
are you being? The call is there for all of us. Jesus is calling. The question is for all of us, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it?